let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel today. And we'll continue in our study through the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 14. <laughs> I'll ask you grace up front here. I'm fighting a cold, so it should be interesting. 1 Samuel 14, as you're making your way there, um, by way of introduction to the text, let me, let me ask you a, a series of questions here. Um, is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol? Is it okay for Christians to smoke? Is it okay for Christians to smoke pot? What if you live in a state where pot is legal? Is it okay for you to smoke pot then? What if you got a medical marijuana card? How about that? Can, can Christians smoke pot then? Is it okay for Christians to go out to a nightclub and go dancing? What if they're going dancing with their spouse? Is it okay then? How about this? Is it okay to go to the movies and watch an R-rated movie? You're like, no way, no R-rated movies, man. What about The Passion of the Christ? That was rated R. Uh, is it okay for Christians to go to a PG-13 movie? You say, no, PG-13 is a little too much PG only. All right, did you know the MPAA uh, allows F-words in PG movies? Is it okay then to go to that kind of a movie? Is it okay for Christians to dress up for Halloween? What if they're dressing up as SpongeBob SquarePants and it's totally innocent? What about then? Can they wear a costume then? See, depending on who you talk to, you're going to get different answers to these questions, aren't you? You know, the pot question, you'll get a quote from the book of Genesis about how God created every herb-bearing plant, you know. Right? Every pothead knows that verse, right? depending on who you talk to, you're going to get a different answer to that question, right? Welcome to the world of legalism. Legalism abounds in Christianity, and it's nothing new. It's been going on since the first century. The very first century church struggled with legalism. Their big issue at that time was that there was pagan worship where animal sacrifices were made, and the meat sacrificed to pagan gods... And because, you know, when the meat was sacrificed, a, a third of it would go to the sacrifice itself, to that pagan god. A third of it would be given as a thank you to the pagan priest who would make the sacrifice. And then the offerer would keep a third of the choice meat for, for him or herself. And what would happen is, because this was sort of a daily thing, there was a ready supply of meat. And, and the, the priests, they could only eat, these pagan priests could only eat so much. So what they would do is they would take the leftovers and they would sell it in the local meat market. Now you add to it the, the pagan offering itself. See, the, the idea was when they would offer the meat to their pagan gods, little g god, um, it was believed that the the pagan god was only interested in the life force that would, that would come, the spiritual life that would come from the meat, and that, you know, you lay that in front of this pagan god, and it would only be there for a period of time before, you know, the life was sort of gone from the offering, and now it's just a piece of steak sitting there. And so what would they do with that? Well, they'd take that to the local meat market, and they would sell that as well. So a ready supply of meat there in the first century, and for, for some Christians, they were weirded out by the whole thing. They're like, they're, they're, they, were, they were legalistic, man, I am not eating food that was sacrificed to a pagan god. I, that is just sin, that is wrong on so many levels, I want nothing to do with it. 
Then there were those Christians who were more liberty-minded Christians, and their attitude was, what, what do I care? I mean, your God isn't real. He's a fairy in your head. He's imaginary. My God is the true and living God. And as it turns out, my God made cows out of steak. So, uh, you know, if, if I can get filet mignon down at the local meat market for half off because there's such a ready supply, bring it on, man. I'll, I'll take it medium well. Thank you very much, you know. And so this was sort of the attitude in the first century church. You had, on one side, you had those people who were very legalistic, didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. On the other end of the spectrum, you had those who were very liberty-minded, who thought, well, you know, that's cool, steak, everything's, everything's awesome. Now, the same thing happens today in the church. Today, we have those that are liberty-minded, and we have those that are very legalistic. This applies in a multitude of areas. For, for, for sake of illustration, I'll use alcohol as an example. You know, is it okay for Christians to drink? Well, you have some people who are very legalistic who maintain absolutely not. It is not okay for Christians to drink. And, and, and so, no, not even a drop of alcohol. Now, you have more liberty-minded Christians who say, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that, you know, it's, it's a sin to be drunk with wine. So, you know, as long as you're drinking and you're not getting drunk, well, then there's, there's no problem with that. And, and so, you know, this would be the argument of a, of a liberty-minded Christian. Now, the, the legalistic Christian would then argue and say, well, no, 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 what if you make your brother stumble? That's not good, so you shouldn't drink because you might cause your brother to stumble. Or you shouldn't drink because, you know, you can't trust yourself with alcohol and you might, you know, drink too much. And so just, that, that's, you know, there's a problem there. And, 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 you know, you could go back and forth on this issue. Now, I, I say that because first, for Samuel chapter 14, really, this issue of legalism is what is at hand. It's what we're dealing with. And when we talk about legalism, man, you've got both ends of this spectrum, and you've got the argument back and forth. The legalist says, I'm, I'm going to worship God in a very conservative way. The, the, the liberty-minded Christian says, hey, I've got liberty in Christ, and so I'm going to, you know, I've got the liberty to, to drink alcohol. And the, again, the, the legalist says, no, 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 you know, you can't. Now, if it just stayed to the place to where <clears throat> the legalist said, okay, look, Romans 14.23 says, whatever's not of faith is sin. And, and I, just, I just don't have faith that, you know, for me, if I drink, I, I just feel conviction of the Lord. And so, so I, you know, I, I, I can't do this. Now, let, let me just be clear. Biblically, is it okay for a person to have a glass of wine? Yes or no? Yes, it is. Except, now you read 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it says there that, that elders, pastors, are not to be given to wine. Now, there are those in Christian circles, other pastors who would argue and say, oh, when it says not to be given to wine, it's, it's, it's not saying that they can't have a drink. It's just saying that it can't be a regular practice. I don't read it that way. The way I read it, I hate alcohol, by the way, just so you know where I fall. I hate it. it caused all kinds of pain and agony in my family. I hate alcohol. I just wish it didn't exist. That's, that's where I come from. But it does, and some people can drink. A lot of people can't drink. And, and by the way, just while, I, while it's in my mind, and I'll say it because it'll be gone. Um, just because you can do something doesn't always mean you should. Okay? So you might have the liberty to drink, but sometimes it's just wisdom not to drink. Okay? But do you have the liberty to drink? You absolutely do. Do pastors have the liberty to drink? I, I discern no. And I interpret that scripture no. And that's our policy here at the church. I just tell the pastors on staff, look, you've given up drinking. You're a pastor. And if you want to drink, then you don't want to be a pastor, at least not here. 
And that's the way I interpret 1 Timothy 3, and I make no apologies for it, and that's where we're at. So, 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 so there's that, but you, but you have this issue of legalism. You got people all over the map. You got people that are liberty-minded. You got people that are, that are legalistic. And, and if people would, in general, embrace Romans 14.23 that says, look, whatever's not of faith is sin, so it respects, hey, look, if you're, if you're very legalistic in your Christianity and you want to take the position that says, hey, look, for me, drinking is a sin, and so I don't do it. And then the person who's very liberty-minded says, oh, I respect that. It's not good for you. Okay, but, you know, here's the, the issue. For me, I have the liberty to drink. But I'll even take it a step further. If, if, if my liberty causes you to stumble, then I'll abstain from my liberty, which is biblical. It's what we're exhorted to do. First Corinthians chapter 8 and, you know, and all. So um, Romans 14, you read through and see that. Now, if, people, if it just stayed there, it would be fine. It would be cool. Here's the problem with legalism. It never just stays there. It never, ever just stays there. Inevitably, legalism leads to bondage and, and to the implementation of unbiblical rules and regulations. And before you know it, legalism brings harm to God's people and it hinders God's plan. And we're going to see that in, in this latter part or this middle part of 1 Samuel chapter 14. And what I want to do today as we go through the text is I'm going to point out several examples and several things that legalism does that brings harm and that brings destruction. And my hope is as we go through this that we together can prayerfully consider, are there areas in my life where I'm being legalistic? Because regardless of whether you're a liberty-minded Christian or a legalistic Christian, all of us have areas in our lives where we can become legalistic and we can impose things and, and, and practices and, and expectations and hindrances on people that God's never really ever put there. And so, so this is kind of what I want to have come to mind here. And um, basically, uh, where we left off... Was, was that there had been a battle that had taken place. Here in 1 Samuel 14, the nation of Israel, there in the land, are surrounded by enemies. And in this case, it's the Philistines. And the Philistines had, had you know, gathered around them, and Jonathan was led of the Holy Spirit to say, no, no, this is not what we've been called to do. <coughs> he was led of the Holy Spirit to be able to say, hey, look, God's given us this land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Literally, we will see that today in our text. God's called us to victory. And so Jonathan stands up and says, you know what? If God's in this, it doesn't matter if it's by many or by few because he's the one that does the battle. He's the one that wins the war. So let's get into this and let's go fight the enemy. And they had a resounding success. And, And we left off in verse 23 where we read, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. That is a high note. That is awesome. Things are great. Now notice where we pick it up now, the very next verse we read, And the men of Israel were thrilled and ecstatic because the Lord had given them victory. Is that what it says? It's not what it says in my Bible either. It says that the men of Israel were distressed that day. What? You just, the very previous verse, the Lord gave you victory. Why are you distressed? Well, here it is. For Saul had placed the people under oath. 
legalism at its finest, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. Listen, if you're taking notes here, here's the first point. Legalism distracts from God's plan. Legalism distract from God's plan. Verse 24 there, it says that the men were distressed. It's interesting, that word distressed, it can also be translated tyrant or taskmaster. And that's exactly what Saul is being. He's being a tyrant and he's being a taskmaster. I want you to think with me for a minute. Again, how did this all start? This battle, how did it all start? It started with the Holy Spirit of God moving upon the heart of Jonathan and God directing Jonathan to go into the battle and to fight the Philistines. And Jonathan, by faith, along with his armor bearer, had tremendous success because God had called them to this and because God was with them in this. And so it started with just the moving work of God. And the result was victory. They had a victory in the battle. Now, What part did fasting play in that plan? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. Now, I'm not saying fasting isn't biblical. I'm just saying in this particular instance, God hadn't prescribed it. He hadn't called them to it. And so in this particular instance, again, it's not that fasting is unbiblical. It's just that in this situation, it was extra biblical. It was something that Saul said, oh, no, no, we're going to add to, I'm going to be legalistic about, and I'm going to say that if we're going to continue in this battle, if we want God's special blessing and we want God's special favor, then, then nobody is going to eat. We're going to all fast until we get this thing done. Now, God was already doing a work, and by adding the extra rules and the regulations, Saul was, was distracting from God's plan. Here's how he was distracting from his plan. When a soldier goes into battle, when a marine goes into battle, there is an enormous expenditure of, of, of energy. I, I was doing some research about this, and, and the, 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 the military departments, the, uh, the Department of the Army and the, and the, the Marine Corps, have done a, as you might imagine, have done a lot of extensive training. Basically what they've found is that on average, uh, the, the average Marine, the average soldier, expends about 5,000 calories in battle. And so what that means is that your energy reserves are, are quickly depleted. So caloric intake is a very important part of the battle process. And so what Saul had done was, was he prescribed something that was very foolish. Because here going into this battle... Now, with his soldiers expending a tremendous amount of energy, they had nothing to replenish their reserves. And so they put themselves in a, in a, in a very precarious state, and they had weakened their ability uh, to fight. And, uh, and so... Expending this energy in such, a, in such a way with these legalistic rules and regulations absolutely distracted from God's plan because God didn't want them just to win the battle. He wanted them to win the war. And as we're going to see by the end of this, what happens is that the Philistines get away. They lost a battle, but they did not lose the war. And God would have had them utterly destroy their enemies at that point. What happened? Legalism got in the way. The enemy got away. 
Legalism got in the way. Now, let's think about this. Um, How does legalism distract from God's plan today? Because God continues to have a plan. He continues to have a battle. How does legalism interfere with the plan and the work and the battles that God wants to do today? Well, again, I, I have an example that comes to my mind. It's just from our family. There's a, there's, there's a thousand different examples that you might be able to think of. Here's one. For us, um, growing up, um, God created my son Scotty uh, as an entertainer. I mean, he was, from the time he was just a little boy, he would have the family in stitches. I mean, I, he was about three and a half years old. We were driving home one day, and, and all the way down, you know, I think we are in the grapevine, I can't remember, but all the way down for like an hour, he's going through this monologue. Three and a half years old, we are in tears laughing at just, you know, the stories that he, the, the, this monologue that he's doing. Now, I don't know where he heard it, but it was amazing. So, He's an entertainer. That's who God made him to be. So what happens is he, by, by invitation and, and by providence, we had the opportunity for him to, to become an actor in Hollywood. And, and he acted in Hollywood for, for a number of years. It started when he was four and, and you know, up until adulthood, he was, he was acting in Hollywood. And, and in doing that, you know, tremendous amount of success. Now, can you imagine the, the kind of ridicule and, uh, and hardship that we took um, as Christians for letting our son be involved in Hollywood. It's like, how dare you, you know, kind of thing. I mean, we had, I just, I used, I, I just happened to mention this in a message. It wasn't even a year ago. Here from this pulpit, I talked about, you know, Scotty's being involved in Hollywood. And, and I got an email. Somebody left our church over me saying that my son, I mean, he's full grown now, married with children, on staff full time, loving Jesus. And somebody took their toys and went home, left our church. Because my son was involved in Hollywood. Now, can I just tell you that he was, he was an, a, a phenomenal evangelist in, in that mission field? It, arguably, it's one of the greatest mission fields in the world. And, 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 and Hollywood needs more Christians to go in and to affect change. I'll just simply, you know, I'll shorthand it and just simply say that because of our involvement in Hollywood, there are people that have entered the kingdom of God and will have eternal life because we chose as a mission field to go and get plugged into Hollywood. Now, we took a tremendous amount of ridicule and, uh, uh, for this and all. Legalism distracts from God's plan. Second thing we see here in our text is that legalism disregards God's provision. Legalism disregards God's provision. Verse 25, and we continue, and it says... Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. And so here's the, 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 the picture, is that there's a, there's a beehive, there's honey just pouring out of the beehive, literally falling onto the ground, just a mound of honey sitting on the ground and dripping out. Literally, they are in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so there it is dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, and therefore he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand, dipped it in a honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. 
Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found, for now there would not have been a much greater uh, slaughter among the Philistines. So not only does legalism distract from God's plan, legalism disregards God's provision. God's provision. I want you to think about it again for a minute. Here's the scenario. God's led them into battle, clearly. God spoke to Jonathan. Jonathan heard him. God, by faith, went out. God led him into this battle, and God made him victorious. They had a great victory. Now they've got him on the run. They have the opportunity to completely decimate and to destroy their enemies and have the Philistines no longer be, you know, their oppositional foes. And so, you know, they've got them on the run. They're burning through calories like crazy. I mean, they're sweating like Mike Tyson in a spelling bee, man. They're working through, just burning off their calories. Clearly, God now provides for them. I mean, they have readily at their disposal honey dripping on the ground. Honey God, is God's, you know, it, you, you want to talk about the best natural source for quick energy. There it is. It's what they need. And what you see throughout this whole thing, clearly God is providing. He's providing overwhelmingly and completely. By the way, this was my argument to when I would have occasion to talk to people who were bold enough to oppose me to my faith. Like, how could you possibly, you pagan heathen dog, have your son thrown out as a lamb to the slaughter in, this, this, in, in Hollywood? How could you possibly do that? And my argument would be, look, my son is a solid Christian. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ. We, he's been raised not just in the church, but he's been raised in a ministry family. He gets it. He, he goes to church every single week. He serves in the youth group. His mom leads a woman's ministry, and she is with him every single day. Everywhere he goes, his mom goes. They are the dynamic duo spiritually together. And, and listen, <laughs> his father's a pastor. He's a pastor's kid. His, his mom with him is a pastor's wife. I mean, arguably, you want to talk about somebody who's, who's evangelistically minded and gifted and trained for ministry. He's the perfect choice for God to send into the ministry. And over and on top of all of that, God has naturally gifted the kid. He's an entertainer. I mean, he, he, I'll tell you how he gifted him. We, we were called up one time. They, they wanted to cast a natural family for a commercial. They're like, we want a real family. So his agent calls up and says, will you guys audition? We're like, all right. So we go down as a family. Brenda's there and I'm there. My girl's there. Scotty's there. His agent calls back and they're like, yeah, um, they want to cast Scotty and put him with another family. Because <laughs> we stunk that bad. But Scotty, I mean, God's naturally gifted the kid, right? So, so, so here's the deal. I, I go through, I just go, look. You want to talk about God's provision. God has clearly provided for this kid to do what he's doing. And, and so, you know, I asked this person, I'm like, what's your plan to reach Hollywood then? You don't think my son should be involved in Hollywood. You know what they, their response was? Boycott it. Oh, that's going to work. People are going to come to Christ by the droves. So you're going to boycott, you know. Greg Laurie said, the last time I checked, you actually have to go into the field to reap a harvest, you know. 
And so, so the, the issue here is that legalism, it distracts from God's plan and it disregards God's provision. God had provided for, for, for them to go and to continue in this battle. And, and Saul, he disregarded the whole thing with his legalistic position on, oh, no, no, you can't eat. I don't care that this is right there in your path as you're chasing everybody down and that you need quick energy right now. No, absolutely not. Stupid. Next thing we see is that legalism leads to um, disobedience of God's precepts. Legalism leads to disobedience of God's precepts. Verse 31. And now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash uh, to Aijalon. Uh, and, and so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and they took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Now, what's happened here is the, 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 the day has gone by and, and the sun has set. It is now evening and so technically their fast is over. Technically, now they can eat. So what they do is they seize upon all the spoil of their enemies that they're now taking, and they, they're slaughtering it, and they're eating it, but they're eating it with its blood mixed in. Now, this was a problem. Now, by the way, they're not eating it sushi style. Some commentators read this, and they're like, they're eating the meat raw. That's, that's not what they were doing. Um, God specifically commanded Israel that they should always properly drain the blood from an animal before they butchered it. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 12 talks about this. It says, only be sure, this is God speaking to them, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. Why? What's up with that? Well, since the blood was the picture of life in any animal, um, God would not allow Israel to eat meat that had not been properly bled. Um, instead, what was to happen was you were to, to drain that blood out onto the ground, and, and by pouring it onto the ground, it was a symbol that life belongs to God, not to man. It was really a symbol that life was precious. So it was a, it was a regular reminder that, it, look, whether you're slaughtering an animal or whatever it is that you're doing, you, you constantly need to be reminded that life is precious, that life comes from God. And so God had given this command. This is, this is his, his biblical command to the Israelites to say, look, you, you, you need to properly drain you know, the blood from the animal. Well, they weren't doing this basically because they had adhered to Saul's stupid oath and they had this legalistic thing on them, been through an entire day of battle. They, they are so deliriously hungry that they don't have, they're, they're not going to take the time to drain, you know, the, the, to properly drain the animal. They're just going to hack it up and start cooking it right away. And so what they're doing is they're sinning against God by doing that. See, here's the idea. The idea is that their obedience to Saul's legalistic command took up all their energy and it led them to disobey God's clearly declared precepts. And, and this is always the result of legalism. It's always the result of legalism. We often think that legalistic rules are going to keep us from sin, but actually the opposite is true. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I have found in my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself, the more sins I commit. Jesus said it this way for the legalists of his day. He said, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. 
You're putting all your energy and all your focus in keeping man's traditions, and meanwhile, guess what? You thumb your nose at mine and you sin, and you won't keep it. Legalistic rules, they always lead us into sin because they either provoke our rebellion or they lead us into legalistic pride. And this is exactly what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2. He said, these things, speaking of legalistic rules, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. None whatsoever. Well, the next thing we see in legalism, not only does it distract from God's plan and disregards God's provision um, and uh, leading to the disobedience of God's precepts, but, but fourthly, what happens, we see that legalism delights to point out the failings of others. You ever notice that? Legalist shows up, God squad here, you're in sin, right? Legalism delights to point out the failings of others. Verse 33 then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. And then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So what Saul's doing here is he's like, Oh, hey, uh, you're in sin, you horrible, rotten sinners, but I'll fix it. I'm going to make an altar and, and set it up so you, know, you can properly slaughter your animal and, and all. And, uh, and so, so every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. And then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now why does the Bible make a point of saying this was the first altar that he built to the, to the Lord? Here's why. Because Saul was the picture, but he really wasn't the real thing. He was a fake. He was a phony. It's like, it's like that story you hear about the, the guy who went to the zoo. He applied for a job at the zoo. They're like, oh, sorry, we don't have that position, but I'll tell you what we do have. Uh, here's a, um, here's a, uh, you know, we don't, <laughs> kind of you know, embarrassed to admit this, but we, we really don't have a gorilla um, and so what we've been doing is we have a guy wearing a gorilla suit. So if you'll wear the gorilla, gorilla suit, that would be awesome. So the guy's like, I don't know, what's it pay? And they're like, oh, it pays really good. Say, All right. So he does this. He puts on the gorilla suit, and he's you know, pretending to be a gorilla, and he's jumping around and hopping, and to his amazement, people are thinking that he's like a real thing. So he got a little carried away, and he jumped up on the wall, and he fell off, and he fell into the lion's den. And so all of a sudden, a lion starts approaching him, and pretty soon he's screaming, help, help, help. He doesn't care if they know he's the real thing or not. And, the, and all of a sudden, he hears the lion say, shut up, stupid, you're going to get us both fired, you know. <laughs> well, basically, you know, Saul's wearing a king suit, you know. He's just, he's not the real thing. So he set up this altar, and he's, you know, doing this, this, this you know, oh, let's, let's do this, but really... He's just doing damage control because all the problem that he called by, that he caused by being legalistic. Um, the issue for us is that legalism, man, it, it, it delights to point out the failings of others. And that's what we see here with Saul. He's just, he, he's saying, you know, his, the first words out of his mouth, verse 33, he says, you've dealt treacherously. Oh, how horrible you guys are. Look at what you've done. You know, it's been said that the only exercise some people get is jumping to conclusions, running their mouths, and kicking others while they're down, you know. Christians, man, we make sport of it. And, and legalists, they do this a ton. 
where, where it, it's, it's all about when you, when you become legalistic, it sort of puts you in the position of God, so you become judgmental. And, and now all of a sudden, you're going to look down on everybody else. Now, now there, there is balance to this. And, and you know, Hebrews 10.24 says, talks about, you know, let us consider one another. How we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And the word consider, it's the word scopio. And, and it, the idea is that you're going to closely look at one another. And so, so the, it's not that we as Christians aren't to serve that function with one another where I'm considering you and you're considering me. But the motivation is what? How we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The legalist doesn't consider you so that he can stir you, spur you on towards love and good deeds. The legalist is considering you how he can judge you and throw rocks at you. And, and hey, guess what? We throw rocks ourselves. It's not just that people throw rocks at us. We can throw rocks at other people just as well. And so, yes, we're called to consider one another, to, to, to look intently at one another, but it's to, it's to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It's not to judge. It's not to, to, to cast judgment. See, because what should have happened here is that Saul should have recognized the people are sinning and I caused it. This is my fault. I need to take a good look in the mirror and I need to own up and I need to take responsibility for this. Here's what Jesus said. He said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. You know, uh, great. I mean, we could just read that verse right there and go, hey, do that this week. I mean, why don't you spend this week just looking in the mirror and just saying, Lord, what, what can I do to bring you glory and honor? What am I doing that, that, that is, is wrong? But truly, you know, we, we, we would rather look, not look in the mirror, but I'd rather look at somebody else and point out all their faults. And this is a problem for Saul. He has a problem admitting his own faults. And what he should have done in this moment was, was repented. But he didn't do that. Um, by the way, you know, were the people guilty of this sin? Yeah. Did the people have responsibility in this sin? Yeah, they had to deal with it. But Saul had to deal with it too, and he didn't do that. <coughs> next, next point about legalism. Not only uh, does legalism, uh, you know, cause, you know, the disobedience to God's precepts and the distraction from his plan and, and disconnect you from his presence. But you know what? Or, 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 yeah, that's the next point. Delight, you know, cause you to delight to point out the sins of others, but it, it disconnects you from God's presence. That's, that's probably the worst thing about legalism. It disconnects you from God's presence. Uh, verse 40, or verse 36, rather. It says, Now Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them, until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. And then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And so Saul asked counsel of God. You know, I'll tell you how this went down. Saul's like, all right, now, you know, here we are, and you guys have sinned, but, you know, we've covered it over and all. And, I, and, I, and, and he doesn't, conveniently doesn't say, oh, I caused it, and I was stupid to make that rash order. Now he doubles down, and he's like, okay, now let's go after him. Everybody's like, all right. And the priest sheepishly goes, maybe we ought to pray about it. Saul's like, all right. So he asked the counsel of the Lord, verse 37, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? <coughs> but he, God, did not answer him that day. Now, um, 
what, what happened here is he got the priest, and what the, the priest would, would have within his vest, he had the, the Urim and the Thummim. And, and what that was, nobody really knows, but, but basically it was, it was a st- uh, stones to, to discern what the Lord's will was, and it's, it's surmised basically that, you know, one side was white, one side was dark, or there was one white stone and one black stone, or whatever, whatever it was, and that was probably more the case. There was a couple of stones in there, one white, one dark, and the priest would reach in, and they would ask a yes or no question, and he would pull out a stone, and black meant no, and white meant yes. Again, we don't really know exactly what it was, but it was something to this effect, and this was the means that they employed um, to, to inquire of God. And so God just wouldn't answer the question. Verse 38, And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. In other words, Saul's attitude is, One of y'all didn't keep the vow that I made you keep, and I know it ain't me, so uh, let's find out who it is so we can cook that person. And um, verse 38, for as the Lord lives, Saul continues speaking, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. So Saul is just all about making these rash oaths to God, and now he just doubles down. Even if it's Jonathan my son, he's going to die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Why? Because they're all looking at Saul talking, going, this guy is a nut job, man. I'm looking at him making all these wrath oaths and all, and they all knew that Jonathan had tasted the honey, you know. Now, here's the problem. Legalism disconnects you from God's presence. What's the deal here? God's not speaking. Is he not speaking because Jonathan ate honey? The answer is no. Here's why God is not speaking right now. He's not speaking because Saul isn't in his will. Saul is out of control. Saul is fighting his own battle. We've already read that in verse 24 when we first started. Basically, he puts the people under oath, and here's why. He said that uh, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So his battle, it wasn't about, and we're going to read a little bit later on, another battle with these same Philistines, David leading that charge. And what happens is David hears Goliath mouthing horrible blasphemies against God, and David, he is upset, not for himself, not really even for the nation of Israel, he's upset for God. He's like, this guy is, is blaspheming God, and he is so righteously indignant, he wants to take him out. Why? He's jealous for God. But this isn't the case here. Saul is jealous for Saul. He, you know, he, he's, it's, you know, Saul's favorite saying is, be reasonable, do it my way. I mean, he's all about him. So he, his whole thing in this battle isn't to fight for the Lord, isn't to fight the Lord's battle, it's to fight for his own prestige, it's to fight for, for his own ego and his own interests. So, so, so God's not answering him because Saul's all about himself, he's just seeking revenge. Another reason why God isn't answering him is because he's fighting under legalistic terms. He's, he's like, hey, everybody fast. You know, God, God's going to put a curse on you. If you don't. And God's like, I ain't putting a curse on you. That's not my thing, that's your thing. And you want, to, you want to attach my name to this thing. I, I'm not attaching my name to it. I'm not going to answer you. And, and thirdly, you know, his prayerful seeking of God in the first place, it's a half-hearted afterthought. I mean, the priest had to go, hey, what, what do you think? We think we ought to pray? You, you can almost picture Saul going, all right, go ahead, pray. You know, because he's already said, let's go down and do this thing. So God's like, look, you, you already know what you want to do. I don't have any, any part of that kind of thing. So, so, so God doesn't answer him. 
God's distance from Saul. Saul's living in his own legalistic world and he's distant from God's presence. By the way, just taking a walk with that for us. When we become legalistic, so often what happens in that process of me having a legalistic heart and a legalistic mindset is that I'm looking judgmentally at other people. I'm looking with disdain at other people. I'm sweeping my own sins under the rug. I won't look at them. I won't take responsibility for them. And I go in a direction where God, at a certain point, he's like, this is where I stop. You go down that road by yourself. And, and, and so now here I'm in this place where, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the presence of God because God isn't, he's not going to go. He's a God of love and grace. God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. But at the same time, he, he, he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And so we have this disconnection from God's presence when we go down that legalistic road. Well, the, the final thing I want you to see here in our text is that legalism divides God's people. Verse 40. Then he said, <clears throat> Saul, to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. Now, I'm sure... He fully said that because he never dreamed in a million years that, that he or Jonathan were, the, were, were going to be you know, the ones that were singled out. So he's basically saying, me and Jonathan are going to be on this side, and all y'all are going to be on that side, and clearly somebody in that rank is going to be chosen. So let's just make this easy for God right up front. We'll stand here, be, be ruled out, and then it's all on you. And shock of shocks, he, he does this, and... Um, The people say, do what seems good to you. Verse 41, therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And so Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. Verse 42, and Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die? This is the craziest thing in the world, Dad. I I, I mean, all I'm guilty of is I heard the Lord God speak to me that I ought to go and fight against our enemies. I did that. God led me. His hand was upon me. We were victorious. And I've been fighting all day. and, And I never heard your oath. I never took your oath. But all of a sudden now, I'm going to be bound to that oath and I'm going to be stricken dead because I didn't keep some extra biblical ridiculous oath that God never called us to make? Is, is this what's up with this? Now I got to die? And Saul answered, verse 44, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Jesus, this is his dad. Holy moly, I mean, imagine Christmas dinners at his house, right? That's a tough crowd, man. You're going to kill me? <clears throat> but the people said to Saul, now they've had enough. They've sat through quite enough. They're like, we fought all day without eating. We saw all your stupid stuff, and now this is where we get off. And so the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God to this day. And so the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Now, there's three reasons Jonathan didn't die, and there's three reasons why he was not guilty before the Lord. When, when God causes the lot to go and that Jonathan is selected, don't mistake this for, jo- for God saying, 
you know, Jonathan is in sin. That's not what's happening here. What God is doing is he is bringing Saul's folly to light. Saul's guilty here of making rash pledges. And God's saying, let me take you to the logical conclusion, the logical end of your rash pledges, of you being so legalistic and and taking this position that I never told you to take. I'm going to force the issue and I'm going to bring you right to the point to where the logical conclusion is of, of your twisted legalism that you're going to kill your son. And he brings him to that place and Saul it just goes right over the edge and says, yep, I'm going to kill my son. If that's, if that's what it means to be faithful to my legalism, then, then I'll kill my son. And so there's three reasons why Jonathan should not righteously have been put to death for this. First of all, it was a foolish oath. It, was, it wasn't what God had required. We've covered that. It was a foolish oath. Secondly, Jonathan never took the oath. He never heard it, so he should not be held responsible for something, A, he never heard, and B, he never took. He never, he made, never made that pledge himself. And thirdly, and the people point this out, God's approval of Jonathan and what he's done is evident. God's hand clearly has been upon Jonathan. And so, so this isn't, you know, this isn't uh, that. And so... Um, it, we, we read that he did not die. And verse 46 says, Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Here's the implication of that simple phrase, that they went to their own place. What it means was they escaped. That God had given them, delivered them into the hand of Israel, and they had the opportunity not just to win the battle, but they had the opportunity to win the war. And because Saul stupidly and stubbornly insisted on being legalistic, the opportunity to have a true victory over the enemy was lost. Legalism divides God's people, and I need you to appreciate the, the picture that we have here. Because the picture here is that this man is so caught up in his legalism that, that, that he's ready to kill even his own son. And he's so bound up in that that the enemy got away. Jesus' harshest rebukes were for legalists. Jesus' harshest words were for those who took a legalistic position. He talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees of his day in Matthew's gospel and, and he called them whitewashed tombs. And, and he, he said to them, you're blind guides. You, you, you go to great lengths to strain out a gnat and in the process you swallow a camel. And what he meant by that was you're gonna, you focus on all the things that are the stupidest, most insignificant things that you, that you in your legalistic fervor put to the top of the list and in the process... You miss doing the important stuff. <clears throat> he told him, he, you know, you, you count out all your spices. You know, he, it, it talks, he, he says, you know, among all the spices that Jesus tells him that they count out is, is cumin. Uh, have you ever seen how tiny cumin is? And he, and, he, and he says this to emphasize, do you see how ridiculous you are in your legalism? You're going to count out your little pieces of, of cumin so that you can tithe on that? And and so you're so legalistically focused on this, he says, you're neglecting the weightier things. You're neglecting justice and mercy and faith. And so he says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're all clean. And on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And and, and here's the deal. What What did these 
legalistic religious leaders do? Well, they killed their son too. They killed the son of God who came to give his life as a ransom for many. They're so bound up in their legalism, they killed Jesus. For us, man, we got to take that to heart. And, And in the close of the message today, and just as we close in prayer and go to the communion table, I just want us to take a walk with, man, am I guilty of being legalistic? Three questions that I I would have you jot down, just take a walk with this week. First one, is there any area where legalism has distracted me from God's plan? Is there any area in my life where legalism has distracted me from God's plan? Second question, do I delight to find fault in others? And the third question I have you take a walk with this week is, do I honor any traditions above the commandment of God? Are there any traditions that I honor above the commandment of God?